Oh hey, I'm glad you're here. This episode continues our look into the lives of the important artists that create the magic we love to see in movies. Directors, actors, and cinematographers are all important, but what drew me towards many movies and what continues to cast a spell over me is the makeup, the masks, the monster suits, stilts, blood, all the artistry in showing us as an audience something we've never seen before. And we all know what I'm talking about. We remember a, a Fangoria cover featuring an image of Rick Baker's work from an American werewolf in London, or the VHS box art in video stores, like uh, Stan Winston's team that created Pumpkinhead made such a fascinating image that I would just stare at it every day in my dad's video store. Our first episode touching on this profession was FX, and we were lucky to get to speak with the special makeup effects artist and legend, Mark Showstrom. I hope you'll go back and listen to that episode, as his stories and experiences are really great. This episode, we discuss the sequel with another extremely talented special effects artist. It truly is staggering to me the amount of skills that people in this profession use every day. I absolutely love it, so let's just get right to it. The film is FX2, the guest is a special effects artist, and this is VHS. Welcome to VHS, the podcast where each episode is about a film. The guest has the professional experience portrayed in the film. I'm your host, Dirk Marshall, and I would be a fool to not ask you to find us on Twitter and Instagram at VHUS underscore podcast. I'm also Dirk Marshall on Letterboxd, and as I always say, I'm going to get better at going on there and logging films, I swear. This episode, I'm joined by Alan Holt. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I should have checked before. Is it Alan B. Holt or Alan Holt? Uh, either the B middle initial. I use that on IMDb because apparently there are other Alan Holtz. Great. Well, hopefully <laughs> I have your credits right from IMDb. Okay. People can find more about you on your website, moviemonstersinc.com. And you are Tooth and Claw on Twitter and FX Holt on Instagram. Is that correct? Correct. Excellent. Although I hardly ever post on either one of those. Yeah, but there are great posts, which is why I want to steer people towards your Instagram especially, because I know a few people and a few people that have been guests on here that either work in special effects or just would love to. And some of the pictures of just like a torso or things that you've worked on is the kind of thing that they just need to see. So cool. Now, VHS covered FX in a previous season with special effects makeup artist Mark Showstrom. Oh, wow. Yeah, be sure to check out that episode. Mark's awesome. Also, his blog, I want to plug. It's markshowstrom.weebly.com. He's got excellent photos from the films that he's worked on over the years, um, so be sure and check that out. Now, before going any further, would you please tell us a bit more about Movie Monsters, Inc.? Well, I've been working in special effects for about 20 years, and Movie Monsters, Inc. is just my own company that I started a few years ago to take on my own projects. And so I will take on creature movies. I just recently did a superhero suit for a movie. I go back and forth between doing those projects for myself through Movie Monsters, Inc. or working at other companies where I will go in and supervise something for a few months here and there. Um, so one question I have right at the top here is, when I pulled up something like your IMDb, an actor just has like, I'm an actor. And so they do that. And if they do producer, they'll have a different page, director, et cetera. But yours is broken up into categories. And I don't know if it's one screen, it's like two-sided and it's all these specific jobs and skills that you have for these jobs. And so my question for you is, do you have 
an agent or how do people find you to do something that's makeup or building an armature or something or doing this other thing? I don't actually have an agent. Um, there, there are some uh, effects people that do. I've thought about it, but it's not something that I've pursued. But every job that I've gotten has been just through referral or word of mouth or somebody that I know from something. Or I just recently finished a job that just a friend of a friend, I was just leaving work one day and just got a random phone call. Yeah, it's all just referrals. And the different categories on IMDb, I haven't looked at my page in a while, but a lot of it is just what I ended up doing on a particular movie because the way our job is, it just ends up falling in different categories, makeup effects, creature effects, specialty costumes. And then it's just how you're going to get categorized, depending whether I ended up on set for a particular movie or just build something in a shop. So yeah, it's kind of random. Yeah, it's fascinating to me. Now, before we go any further, it's important that we answer the big question. These are listener-generated questions. I keep them in this nice little jewel case here from my dad's VHS store. Just going to open it up at random and see what we get. And today's is from Jim McCusker, who's McCuskerJam9 on Instagram. What film have you seen the most times and why? Interesting question. Wow. That's a hard one. Because there's chapters in your life, I feel like it's the younger time. There's going to be a kid's movie that you had access to that you could watch over and over. Teenage years, that's different. Boy, yeah, that's a tough one. How would you answer that? Well, the easy answer for me is to think of the home tapes that we had. Because while I did grow up in a video store, we also had, you know, home tapes. We had a six-hour tape that had Ghostbusters, Gremlins, and I want to say The Last Dragon with Bruce Leroy. So, I mean... That was on constant rotation. I was also, as a child, obsessed with Secret of Nim, so I watched that endlessly. Um, those are easy answers for me. I think it's difficult when you get to the teenage 20-something years because we all have periods where our favorite movie is this or that, or I love the movie The Reflecting Skin, but... Maybe Jaws. Yeah. Yeah, for me, you know, in the early years, it was definitely Jaws and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. Those are both two movies that made me want to do what I do. I guess there might have been a moment where it was like The Shining or Silence of the Lambs, mm -hmm. you know, because those are movies that whenever they come on, you just watch them all the way through, you know? Yeah. In recent years, though, man, with the streaming and everything, it's gotten a lot more scattered because there's so many things to watch. Yeah. It gets to be by mood now rather than just like, oh, I just came across The Shining because it's just, you know. Yeah. Dreaming stuff. Something like that. I'll, I'll put that on just because I just want to remember how it made me feel the way it did. You yeah. Know? And I'm trying to understand it and the effect that it had on me. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's great with something like Jaws too, because working in the field that you work in seems so drastically different from when they were working on that with the animatronic Jaws, Bruce or whatever, the shark. And now it's, there's so many I mean, it'd just be like CG sharks, wouldn't it? Well, I'll get back to the CG thing in just a sec, but that's a great example of the difference between then and now. When you watch Jaws, there are so many reasons why it's a relic of a different era, but part of it is just, it's a serious movie. It's a yeah. drama. Mm -hmm. You could tell that the writers were top-notch, you know, Carl Gottlieb and Peter Benchley, they, they were top-notch writers and the performances are so grounded. So I'll watch a movie like Jaws now just to try to sort of meditate on the difference between how they treat B-movies now versus then. Because I'll watch that and I'll be like, how come we can't do that anymore? Yeah. I mean, I love modern movies, but you couldn't make Jaws now. I mean, no. and I'm still trying to understand all that. I'm also a wannabe screenwriter. I write and pitch screenplays. And so I'm always thinking about that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then you said you were going to get back to CG. Oh, in the last 20 years, 
there have been some absolutely amazing practical sharks. And the guy who does it, he's up in the Bay Area, Walt Conti, that's his name. But okay. he did the sharks in Deep Blue Sea. They also pop up in The Perfect Storm. He also did Free Willy whale stuff. But that guy can build dolphins that swim autonomously. I have a friend who's actually swam with them. They're trying to do a dolphin experience where instead of swimming with a real dolphin, you swim with this robotic dolphin that can actually swim for real. That guy, he's the top of that game for sure. Nobody could quite achieve that that I know of, but his sharks look amazing. And yes, there are a lot of digital sharks. It's funny because they could not do a good CG shark until like four years ago. Yeah, I know. I can be very cynical about that, but I remember when I finally, finally saw like a decent CG shark and I was like, oh, okay, they can finally really do it. Yeah, I agree. That movie Crawl, it's not a shark, but it's a... Alligator, yeah. Yeah, it's like a master. The alligators look amazing in that movie. I was really shocked at even the parts where they're like, here's the corny gag of like five of them pulling someone apart. You know, it still looks really good. It's Um, also a great movie. I'm obsessed with the crocodiles also. Okay, great. I have lots of opinions about crocodile movies, but... (laughs) Me too. That's a whole nother thing. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I have a whole collection of shark movies and a whole collection of crocodile uh, alligators as well. Yeah, Uh, I I like things with big jaws that bite people. And that's like some of the most fun uh, jobs I've had. I got to work on this movie called Frankenfish in 2004-ish, I think. And I'm not going to talk about whether it's a good movie or not, but we have this giant fish monster that eats all these people. And I got to spend a day scuba diving, puppeteering this thing, fighting a stunt guy and, you know, just biting him with these giant fake jaws. And it's like the most fun thing. One of the most fun things I've ever done on set. I, I got mild hypothermia from being underwater for 10 straight hours, but it was so fun. That's the most fun thing. It's like yeah. playing with toys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I also love all the behind the scenes photos of people working on those special effects where you can see either the puppeteering or the movements of the jaws and especially the the teamwork shots when you're watching of making of things and you see like animatronics working with puppeteering and then like you know it's just I love the the teams that are kind of assembled to pull off like the best effect that they can do with that budget. But the reason that I'm joined by Alan today is because we're brought together by the film FX2. I know this wasn't a first time watch for you. So what's your history with FX1 and 2? I graduated high school in 94. And so these movies hit me right at that time where I was like, is that a real job? Could I really do that? Because I was reading the magazines and I was watching the behind the scenes, you know, specials about special effects and just trying to figure out if it was really an option. These movies hit me at the perfect time and I loved them. I mean, I always knew that they were a little far-fetched, but you know, the late 80s, as everyone listening to this knows, there was this magic moment in practical creature effects. So many awesome things were done in that time. I mean, I could list them, but you know, we all know the same thing, but there was this The late 80s in particular, and, you know, I include early 90s, 91, 92, before Jurassic Park, there was this moment where the public was super into practical creature effects and and to the point where they were sort of mystified and people just believed it was magic to a certain extent. But there's a few movies from that era where the practical effects are still bulletproof. In particular, for me, 1990, Tremors. Yeah. Any shot in that movie is bulletproof, even today. And there's, it's right before CGI, it's right before all that thing, but it's a bunch of people working at the top of their game, yeah. whether it's miniatures, full-size creature stuff that was built by ADI. 
it's just a this moment. And then another movie just like that is the Blob remake in 88. I mean, I have 7,000 other favorites from that era, like Aliens, Predator, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3. Yeah. There's tons of great effects. The Thing, but The Thing is a little earlier. But this moment in the late 80s, early 90s, the public, everybody was super into this stuff because nobody knew that the way CG was going to hit. So like this movie came out, there's a lot of hype. And once you start the movie, there's some things, there's some funny quirks about that. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, it hit me at the perfect time to be completely fascinated by everything about it. I love it. The synopsis is a special effects man helps his girlfriend's ex, a cop, with a sting operation where the ex gets killed. This is in the synopsis. Something's off and he investigates with the help of an ex-cop PI friend. I don't know why they didn't just say the boys are back together because that's all anyone cares about. But currently it's available at your local video store like Movie Madness here in Portland, Oregon. You can stream it, of course. There's a DVD double feature. But I say support those video stores. Let's put it in context. Some of the people working on this directors, Richard Franklin, who we know from Patrick and 78, Road Games, Psycho 2, Cloak and Dagger, Link, and ton of TV movies. Our cinematographer is Victor J. Kemper, who did The Candidate in 72, The Gambler, Dog Day Afternoon, Xanadu, my childhood favorite, Oh God, uh, Mr. Mom, Lonely Guy, Cloak and Dagger, again, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, Jingle All the Way. And then our editor is Andrew London, who did Psycho 2, Cloak and Dagger, Rambo 3, both FX movies, and then moved into TV. And then really quickly, our three leads, we have Brian Brown, who did, of course, FX and Cocktail, Brian Dennehy, who did First Blood, Cocoon, and Silverado, and then Rachel Tikotin, I think I'm saying that right, who was in Total Recall, Con Air, Falling Down, and Man on Fire. So let's press play on FX2. We start with intense film noir music and an aerial shot of New York City that gives way into whimsical saxophone. Uh, kind of sounds like somebody should be racing a jet ski or something at this point. This is the work of Lalo Schifrin, the composer for Bullet, THX 1138, Dirty Harry, Enter the Dragon, Magnum Force, The Manitou, and all three Rush Hour movies. Uh, we see a homeless man almost get hit by a car. person in the car we think is the lady, maybe, but it turns out not, and we get the awesome uh, I don't do windows as he throws the homeless person through a window. I don't do windows. cops arrive open fire in one of my favorite sequences that i forget about every time i revisit the movie the person being shot is leaking blue blood we see these metal structure underneath a rocket comes out of the robot's severed arm and fires at the police which catapults them over the car but it doesn't explode because we're in a movie i want to see that movie did you feel the same way well yeah i mean it reminds me of a lot of different movies it's a great sort of amalgam of a lot of those yeah it's so good is this a common occurrence for special effects people that by the time you get to shooting the gag or the set piece isn't dialed in or is this a more of a rare occurrence? You mean just something going wrong and having to do another? Yeah, having to reset up the shot. and That's the whole thing. I mean, yeah, okay. <laughs> constantly having to do that. But what's funny to me about this scene is kind of what I was alluding to before. So they cut you know, because yeah. everything's going wrong. And then the robot <laughs> just starts walking around doing stuff. Yeah. It's so funny because we thought special effects were magic. And so the public is supposed to believe 
that this is an autonomous character that just walked in set and did this whole scene. Yeah. And then it just has a mind of its own. It just, it decides it's just gonna walk off and start grabbing things and, you know, and then Brian Brown has to come up and shut it down. That is hilarious. I mean, even today we have great animatronic stuff, you know, they could do a lot of things, but everything is still, every performance is built in editing and everything is a cheat. It's all just, what do you need to see in one particular shot? So the idea of a fully autonomous thing that just walks in and acts out of the thing is still hilarious to me. Special effects was magic and the public was like, yeah, that's how it is. Yeah. In the scene, also the director says to Brian Brown that he, as a reference, he's like, I was third on Chainsaw Santa, which is a fake movie, but also I want to see that movie too. And the one thing that both these FX movies do is they have either posters or names of fake films and I would watch all of them. Yes, Mannequin Depression. Yes, Mannequin Depression. There we go. Can you imagine how cool Mannequin Depression would be? I mean, could you write it or would you have to pay them for the name? I don't know, but I could write a story based on that idea for sure. Okay, I'm, I'm into it. I want to see it. It's it's very futuristic there, what they're doing with this robot. And speaking of the futuristic movies, you worked on Pandorum. I did, yeah. What did you do on that film? Pandorum was one of the first movies I did at Stan Winston Studios, and I did two things. One, I was working just in the mold department, molding the prosthetic makeup uh, sculptures, and then I also painted some background heads, airbrushed, because they had a ton of background characters, that kind of thing. I did not go to set or anything like that. that. So when you say mold sculptures, is that like what we would also call like an appliance or? Yes. Yes. So the pieces that become like the face or something or? Yeah, so typically they'll do a life cast of the actor and then the actor's face will be reproduced now usually in an epoxy fiberglass material. So you have a perfect epoxy copy of somebody's face and then the character sculpture is done on top of that in clay. And then to mold that, what that means is basically encasing the sculpture in fiberglass or epoxy and then to create an impression of it so that what you sculpted in clay can then be duplicated in any type of rubber, like silicone or foam latex. And then because it's created on top of a likeness of the actor, it then will fit perfectly on that actor and glue into place. And so with makeups like Pandorum, what they'll do is you'll create a multi-piece makeup that sort of puzzles together on the person's face. We do those all different ways. Those can be anywhere between just a full-on mask down to something that's broken into a dozen or more pieces. Right. Depending on how subtle it's supposed to be. Like some of these old age makeups, they're very, very subtle and they have very thin edges and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, so Pandorum, there were tons and tons of appliances and really liked the designs. They're actually, I found them scary. And I was thrilled that there were so many being done that I actually got to jump into the paint department on that. Break out the airbrushes and do that. That's one of my favorite departments to work in. And for special effects, is there a big difference for, say, working on a film? or episodic TV like Firefly, which you worked on? Well, the difference is just the timing and the schedule. Like some of those TV things, you just work so fast. It's like your head spins. And then some movies now, the schedules are quicker now than they were even 20 years ago. I guess the bigger the budget is, the more time you have. But back on Buffy, the Vampire Slayer and Angel, we had to crank characters out in like less than 10 days. You know, we'd We'd be just busting out makeup after makeup or really quick turnaround creature suits. I mean, the full body suits took longer than that, but that was like a boot camp for me, for sure. Wow. The next scene, Rolly's lady wants to go somewhere, but he's clowning around with a clown suit. He puts on his telemetry suit. He puts it on his wife. And then there's this crazy scene that unfolds with the clown matching her movements. This is Bluey. 
He's got an excellent design. And speaking of design, you worked on Skylines. Can you share with us a little bit about that? I did Beyond Skyline, which was Skyline Part 2. And that was the first movie I did as my own company. And I got to build seven foot tall alien suits. And yeah, that was still the biggest project I've ever done for my own company. And then I also got to direct Second Unit, which was another dream come true. But yeah, that, that was an incredible experience for a lot of reasons, because just through the circumstances, I got to hire just amazing artists to work on it under me, like people that I'd known about since I was a teenager. One of the sculptors, uh, this guy, Joey Orozco, he sculpted the Triceratops in the first Jurassic Park. Wow. And, um, and a lot of other things like that on that level. And so I I had read about him and then I got to boss him around and have him sculpt me. Yeah, and there were a bunch of other artists of similar caliber. That was an incredible experience. And then for part three, which they shot in Lithuania, I just built another character and shipped it over to them. But those movies totally changed my career. Yeah, Beyond was the first I saw of those films. I didn't see the first one because I saw the trailer. Maybe it was just who I was at the time when the trailer came out, but I was like, not interested. And then I saw the trailer for Beyond And I was like, okay, I know this isn't a major mainstream film, but it looks like they're doing all of the things that mainstream films are doing. The giant, I'm sure it has a name, alien creature thing, all the different designs. So it was your work that I was impressed by. And then I watched it and I was just telling everyone I knew. I was like, no, no, no. If you watch sci-fi or you like action, like you have, I bought it for my brother. I was really blown away by that film and have since watched, you know, I've gone back to watch the first one and the third one. I'm excited for the fourth is coming out, I think. They're starting to plan it. Yeah. And Beyond is, it's an insane movie because we shot in Indonesia and Los Angeles and they went up to Toronto, I think, for some second unit subway stuff. And so Liam, the director, had to shoot all over the world and with crazy visual effects. And he had the Kung Fu guys from the Raid movie. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And those guys are awesome. And Frank Grillo is, you know, he's also great martial arts fighter and watching those guys spar on set just for fun was awesome too but my aliens got beat up by the best kung fu guys yeah he had to make that movie i don't recall the exact budget but he had to make it look like a hundred million dollar movie yeah for the third one the budget was even less but it looks even more expensive so i have high hopes for liam as a big action movie director Same. he's sort of like he figured out how to make these huge scope movies it'd be interesting to see what happens next for him for sure yeah, yeah. And he's also one of the hosts of the Action for Everything podcast. Yes. So people can hear him talk and realize what a solid dude he seems like. I'm yeah. super excited for his career. I call him all the time with questions. When I'm bidding on a movie, I'll call him up and say, hey, these guys have this much money. Would it be crazy for me to ask for this? Visual effects, can they handle this? On that budget, will they really be able to do this or that? He's been a great friend to me in that way since we did those movies. I love that. Back in the film, Bluey has a robotic head, but is also a person in a costume. And you have credits that fall under costume, like on The Boys. So can you tell us what a super suit project manager is? Well, on those TV shows, I was working for a company called Creative Character Engineering. The job is just basically to interpret the design that our costume designer had done and just kind of figure out how to execute it. And then just bring that through the process of integrating the 3D modeling of uh, armor, you know, with the soft goods department, they're actually creating the fabric end of the costume and then going through with the armor, going through molding and casting and painting. And it's a very, very highly technical process. And the real exciting thing about those things for me was that because there were TV and there were pretty big budgeted TV Mm -hmm. shows, we would have the chance to do 
many, many fittings and develop the integration between the armor and the fabric and the design and all the different needs as we evolve the costume. And on low budget things, you never have the time to do that. You just kind of hope for the best and just wing it and do your best and slam through it. Those shows, they were definitely stressful because there was a huge amount of work to get done and it wasn't an easy schedule, but it was something where by the time those things ended up on set, they had gone through a lot of development and we tried out so many variations of things. And for those shows in particular, the ones you mentioned, I got to go up to Toronto for a month and basically hand off what we had done to the local set team up there, you know, and kind of be like, well, we created this thing. We've solved the major problems, but you're going to take it from here and here's how you fix it and have fun. There's a lot of variety in these jobs, which is fun. Yeah, that's got to help keep it fresh, I'd imagine. Yeah, yeah. So next in the film, Chris, the little boy, shows up playing with a controller and we get the awesome line from the mom, Chris, no choppers in the house. I love that part. Chris, I told you a million times, no choppers in the house. I think I got the hang of it, Rolly. Doing well. Nice light touch, remember? Chris. I was very excited, hoping we get a lot of toys, but we get a few in the scene. Enter Mike, who's Chris's dad. Mike's a cop who takes Chris to work with him for about five minutes as Phil Bosco is the police chief who tells him what the job is. He was in True Colors, Quick Change, Working Girl, and Trading Places. Then he returns home. Raleigh does a little fire gag with his finger, lighting a candle for Kim. And then Raleigh and her start smooching. Chris comes home and Mike wants Raleigh to join and make an illusion for a peeping killer. Raleigh has an incredible fish tank in the scene, which is where I was going to ask you about Frankenfish, but you've already given us oh. a gem on that one. How long did working on something like Frankenfish, how long were you on that? That was so long ago. I think it was like a three month build. And then I was on location for maybe five weeks in a swamp off the grid in Alabama. Oh my gosh. That was an insane shoot. I think that movie was less than $4 million and we like blew up houseboats and sank them and did fire gags and boat crashes and a 12 foot fish monster and decapitations and everything you could imagine. So when you're out in a swamp like that, they can't actually sweep the swamp for alligators and things, can they? I mean, there is a two part answer to that. <laughs> well, depending on how much time you have. But first off, it was around Christmas time, so it was very cold. Oh. So the alligators are bored and not doing much anyway. Okay. But they did throw a bunch of cherry bombs in the area where we were going. I, I, I mean, wait, am I supposed to say that? Uh, <laughs> it was a long enough time ago. They discouraged dangerous wildlife from hanging out nearby. Can I tell you a, a, a Yes, please. Okay, so, so I have millions of these. But yep. when I showed up for Frankenfish, I trained for that movie because they were like, you're going to scuba dive, you're going to do all this stuff. I was swimming laps, lifting weights, just getting ready to just, because they told me, they were like, take your wetsuit, just be ready for anything. Mm -hmm. And just do whatever they say and just don't die. I flew down there. There was a hurricane or something, so we had to land in Pensacola, Florida, and then I'd drive all the way. And then this hotel in the middle of the causeway in the middle of nowhere, I walk into this hotel and it's like a Shriners convention or something. And I'm just looking around. I'm like, I'm going to find the film crew. I'm going to find the film crew. And I look up and I see this lady across the lobby and she has a look on her face. And I'm like, that is an assistant director. <laughs> I am from Los Angeles. I can spot an assistant director. And then I was like, look to the left. I'm like, and that's a sound guy. I, I know these people. These are my people. And so I went up and I was like, hey, and I was dead on right. So here's the story. I, there's this guy who looked like Russell Crowe, sitting there pounding beers, super macho guy. 
And I go up and, and I start talking to this guy and he's like, yeah, I grew up spearfishing in Alaska. I would just jump in the water and just catch stuff with my bare hands. And then I'm like, well, I'm supposed to scuba dive on this show in this swamp. And he goes, bro, you don't want to get in the water here. I'm like, what do you mean? And he, and he goes, I mean, I grew up, you know, like I said, just jumping in in Alaska, just grabbing sturgeons and stuff. But I got in the water here. You can't see anything. I went down there. Something brushed up against me and I jumped out of the water screaming like a little girl. And I was like, I, I hate this movie. <laughs> so that was my introduction to, oh. to that. <laughs> we spent a month in the swamp playing with fish monsters so. wow next we get sad thoughtful music as Raleigh sketches we also see the design for his watchie talkie which is weird because talk clock is like right there i mean watchie talkie kind of more of a stretch but then he gets out his old kit and the music kicks in and i was like oh yeah here we go we get a montage of them setting up was this sequence interesting to you with all the lights oh yeah i love seeing how they represent this kind of stuff. I also like Raleigh Tyler. He's an effects guy who does absolutely everything. Yeah. He'll blow things up. He'll do fire. He'll do makeup right. effects. He'll do bullet hits. And he builds robot toys. And Yeah, he also has cameras that stream wirelessly. And Yes. Have you ever shown up on location to do a special effect and the environment itself was a major factor against you being able to accomplish it? The reason I thought of this question was because they're setting up in a bathroom. Would you know the dimensions of the room that you would be setting up a visual effect in? I would say that's an issue at least half the time. And for every possible reason. Just because half the time you'll build an effect intending for puppeteers or operators to be on one side of it. And usually you build it based on the storyboard, but then you get to location and there, there's a wall right where you're supposed to be. And they're <laughs> like, no, you, you gotta... It's always like that, to be honest. Okay. I used to be more agitated about that stuff because you'll be like, I built this exactly the way the storyboard shows it. It shows you shooting from the left side. But the truth is everybody on every film set is inconvenienced. And so like the truth is, right, part of the whole, the whole evolution as a professional is learning to roll with it and just accept that we're all in the same boat, you know, and you always, everything is always wrong and you always have to just figure it out. I love it. So yes, the answer is yes. Almost every time the environment is <laughs> Raleigh has made some breasts for Mike and explains how it all works. Raleigh has some not-so-hidden cameras, one of which is my favorite, the sponge camera, where it's literally just a camera on top of a giant yellow sponge in the corner. We see Raleigh leave. We get an excellent crane shot coming down to the stakeout car. I love this camera moving here. We see Raleigh leave, but he doesn't really leave. And then the perp shows up, and they follow him up to his room. We learn that the bathroom is a projection, and the lady is, like, crawling underneath the projection to escape the bathroom. They're using steam which is a question mark because it seems like a smoke machine but could be wrong seems like it would smell very different when the killer entered the room to uh right in the yeah. shower if it's smoke you're gonna be like this smells like a rave in 1992 yeah smoke do smell weird yeah the killer produces a blade and heads towards mike in the bathroom but the bathroom's too full of smoke and a different person kills mike and the original killer is shot by silag Raleigh runs into the real killer on the stairs and we get a great stunt of Raleigh trying to stop the car and then almost getting run over. And the cops think they got the guy, but Raleigh knows different and he calls his old friend, it's Leo. And next Raleigh explains there's been an accident. And by that, I mean, he literally says to the kid, there's been an accident. And that's all the explanation that we needed, I guess. So they do the next logical thing and they go to the apartment while the cops are gathering information to just to get a few things. The head cop confronts Raleigh about his not so hidden cameras the head cop says, stop fooling with me because it's PG-13. And I love like how this movie chooses when it's going to swear and when it doesn't because it fully has swears in it. But this and another line in the next scene right here where we get Leo's message and Raleigh is heated. So he says, stop farting about. <laughs> I was like, that's pretty good. I, I like 
that expression. We next get Rolly uh, impossibly enhancing his video. Did you enjoy this? <laughs> yeah, I love that. that. This is one of the most egregious enhance <laughs> yes. bits ever. Oh my gosh. Like it's before it became a joke on the CSI shows and everything. Like here we have it right in this where it's just impossibly like just pixels. And then it it's just like the robot cyborg monster right. thing at the beginning. It's like we just thought technology was magic. Yeah. So we just figured, well, why not? You know, that's so true. The killer shows up to get the tape and he tricks the killer to walk near the clown. And we get this awesome old timey fight with the clown and Brian putting the suit on. I love it because they're really selling it. He's like this dramatic fight scene with the telemetry suit and the clown, which the clown's eyebrows are going up and down. They're controlling the animatronics on it the whole time. It's really amazing. This is my favorite part about this movie is that clown and fighting with it. As silly as it is, it's the thing I think of when I think of this movie. I agree. It's total insanity. And then Brian literally throws everything in the apartment at, I mean, Raleigh throws everything in the apartment at the killer. He's like jumping on tables and shelves and throwing every vase in there at him. It's really great. Then he gets his head stuck in the fish tank. There's a behind the scenes footage of this film where you can see them about to shoot and it's cool because you get to see the director saying, okay, take a breath and then put your face in the water. And, you know, they're in the pose and everything. And Brian says, you say action, then I'll take my breath. And the guy's like, okay, action. And then he takes the breath and the guy pushes his head under. It's just a little bit of the how the dumplings are made. I don't know the saying. Yeah. It's really great. We get a little rooftop chase. And then Rolly drops onto the top of Leo's car after Leo tells him, don't fuck up my roof because it's PG-13. So he's going to swear sooner or later. And the boys are back. They head to Leo's and Leo pushes Rolly into the door and the giant monster pops out from the first film. It's in the bar. I love it. I wish we got more of these monsters. If anything, I think we were very similar minded, similar age and watching movies like this and being like, I want more of that monster. I want a bunch of those. Like, give me that. It's a closed out bar that Leo owns now. Rolly and Leo start breaking down what's happening. And Leo says it's a shit pile case. And the cops have these old cases. They're going to work it on their own time. Speaking of breaks, we're going to take one. We'll be right back after this. Ah, uh, feeding. Everyone's got to do it, even vampires. But if you aren't a vampire, or a baby, or a baby vampire, then sometimes eating can become so repetitive and boring. Which is where Marshall's Hot Sauce comes in. Liven up any meal with those small batch sauces made from only the freshest ingredients. From the sweet, mild heat of smoked habanero barbecue to the addictive Serrano ginger lemongrass, or even my two personal favorites, habanero carrot curry and bird's eye basil. In fact, Marshall's Hot Sauce even has a new line of seasonings, including an incredible barbecue rub, a chicken marinade, and even a volcano sparkle that a vampire could eat. Ha <laughs> uh, The best part is that you can enter VHS Podcast at checkout for 20% off. That's right. Liven up those meals and wake up those undead taste buds at marshallshotsauce.com. That's marshalls, H-A-U-T-E, sauce.com. And enter VHS Podcast for 20% off. And now, back to the show. We're back, and Leo heads to his old partner's house with information Dennehy is great in this scene. Uh, Dennehy sends Rolly to the station with no disguise. He just walks back into the police station that he was just working for, and he just has a hat on. <laughs> it's like, 
he could do any makeup effect in the first film he wears like a rubber head and everything but just sunglasses and a hat that's cool next we see Dennehy behind the bar working on flair and i gotta say this has to be because of cocktail it has to be that brian was in cocktail and so Dennehy was like i'm gonna get behind the bar and i'm gonna do a little flair with the bottles I, mm -hmm. that has to be why it's there but i, I don't probably know. yeah they hear Silac cleaning up the mess on tape. Then we see Matt Neely played by Kevin J. O'Connor in the courtroom. Kevin's always great in everything. He was in uh, Van Helsing, Peggy Sue, Deep Rising, Lord of Illusions. Then he meets the lawyer who's an old flame of his. This is a weird side plot. We learn that Silac is in charge of the situation. He asks if he thinks Hylak is on the level because he needs to speak with Healy. It's very, very interesting. Leo learns the case is all about gold medallions all of a sudden made by Michelangelo and Carl Becker, an old man in the hospital, might have them. So Raleigh calls to check on Kim and Chris, but she went to class. Okay, so here's the whole thing that I had skipped over previously is that they were supposed to stay home and not go anywhere. And unfortunately, they did not do that. So the killer is going to go out after the kids. The kid gets a call to send some information via a modem. So he has to go to the mall. Uh, I don't remember malls having these computer modems, but I guess maybe some did, but not in my small town. So the kid has a disc. It's all got the whole, everything the movie is about is on this disc, and that's what the killer is actually after this whole time. Well? Ah, uh, Chris. Hi, it's Raleigh. How are you? Listen, I need your help. Um, do you ever remember the name Becca on one of your game discs? What if I do? Well, I need to know what was in that file. They don't have a computer here. Listen, uh, Chris, how you doing? Uh, look, uh, my name is Leo. I'm a friend of Raleigh's. Do you know anybody out there who might have a computer? Yeah, who brought them all? Do you want me to send it to you by modem? Yeah, that's a good idea. Leo's not to leave the house. That's a good idea, Chris. Go to the mall. I want you to send it to me. He's not to leave the bloody house. He's safer there. There's people oh, there. Oh, bullshit. Where the hell are you going? To get Kim. Uh, listen, Chris. Yeah, it's okay. Listen. Have you got a pencil? Yeah. The boy starts to send the transmission, but he's interrupted. And Raleigh sets chase in the mall grocery store, which is one of my favorite set pieces of the film. I have no idea why there's this grocery store attached to a mall. Maybe that's common in anywhere but small towns, but we had them very separate. But we see Raleigh pull a fast one in the scene with a popcorn machine and a lighter and shoe polish. There's hairspray, barrettes, and a lighter and a can of beans, which explodes. Yes. Yeah. And then they hit him with a cart, which I was like, that seems very straightforward. They set him on fire, which he extinguishes with syrup, and then they beat him with two chickens and shrink wrap his head. <laughs> it's really great. Yeah, this scene is one of those things you want to see him pull some MacGyver stuff. Yes. You know, it's kind of like there's a scene in one of the Iron Man movies where Tony Stark chased through an abandoned bar by some uh, somebody and he has to MacGyver a bunch of stuff. And you're like, yeah, yeah, he's going to think of stuff that the audience shouldn't be able to think of you know i think they could have gone farther with this but i like what he did with the hairspray and the cans of, you know that was clever yeah i could really watch this movie be remade over and over and over just for the gags like that i would love yeah. to see that i mean when i watched that denzel washington equalizer movie the first one that's like in a home depot is where the final scene takes place and i loved that i was like just give me more of that just like in this i'm like show have them outsmarting people and with all the weird thing this movie in particular the effects i do i mostly do creatures character kind of stuff but i have worked side by side with a lot of pyro guys and a lot of old school physical effects guys who will do things like they're putting explosives in a rubber head that i made to blow it up or something like that and those guys 
the practical jokes that those guys play on each other are terrifying. <laughs> and I've sat there and just my jaw just on the floor while they told me stories and, you know, things that they did. And I think if they ever remade or made a movie like this again, you got to get a, a physical effects guy to write that scene and yeah. put in a lot of that stuff. And supposedly in the behind the scenes, the special effects person, I don't know which department exactly, but walked the aisles of that grocery store with Brian, and then they came up with the gags for the thing. That's Brian's words. I don't know if that's really what happened, but it seems like that would be really fun as an actor to walk around with someone who knows what they're talking about and be like, oh, I could do something with this, this, and this. Oh, yeah. You know, just watching how the magic works. I think that'd be great. Unfortunately, in the next scene, Leo's girlfriend's gunned down as they get Chinese food outside of a building. Leo goes to see the assistant DA, and she has a hairless cat, which is very important in this scene. Then he cracks some jokes about it. Cornish Rex, they don't shed. Are you telling me that, <laughs> are you telling me that they look like this on purpose? It's like a big rat. Selak and Healy head to the church. Rolly's there watching. Healy pries up a kneeling cushion from the floor of the confession and finds the gold coins. Rolly follows them with dynamite tied to a kitchen timer, instant mashed potatoes, and a buttload of sausages in his trunk. And next we see Rolly load the sausages into a pitching machine, which the guard dog set chase for the wieners only to get locked in the tennis court. I want to know how many hot dogs these dogs ate because it is they're going after them fast. It's amazing. The henchman sees instant mashed potatoes fanning from a high window. Next, Rolly puts Ether in a smoke machine and that knocks a henchman out. And then a guy sees a pool ball jump out of a pocket and hit him in the face in the next scene. I love how all of these things are things he could have just done. Like he could have just thrown the ball at the guy's face or in the next scene, he steers a submarine next to the boat and then shoots a dart in the guy's neck, but he's easily close enough to just shoot a dart in a guy's neck. But he like, right, right. he's a special effects guy and that's what makes it so interesting. I like the ether smoke machine thing. That was cool. Yeah, I like that too. I enjoy the miniature submarine. Have you worked with miniatures or is that like a different department from something you would do? I have not, but that it's on my bucket list for sure. A few of my friends have. I know some of those companies. I have not had a chance really to do that. I've seen them, but that's something I would like to do at some point. I'm not sure when or how, but I love that stuff, you know? Yeah. By the time this episode comes out, we will have already released our episode on The Crow. I hadn't watched that since the theater. The uh -huh. miniature work in that movie is so rad. It's really, really cool. I, I was worried it wouldn't age well, but they did so much really cool stuff with the miniatures. In fact, there's parts where they didn't have the budget to shoot the car scenes. And so they're cutting back and forth between actual cars and miniatures in the car chase. It totally works. Oh, I'm gonna have to check that out again. The movie I just came back from, I don't think I'm allowed to say what it is, but I just came back from a month long shoot that I would call maybe the most difficult physically, the most challenging shoot of my entire career maybe, but it is a film where I built three full-size characters, but they did a bunch of miniatures that I'm really excited about. I only saw one of them, but I shouldn't have brought it up because I'm not allowed to say what it is. Sure. Yeah, no, but that's, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that is exciting. I'm always waiting to see what the next things are. And by the time us as an audience get to see a film, sometimes it's been you know, worked on and done for like a year or something because there's all the post time and stuff. But yes. but I'm excited and going to keep keep my eyes open for that for sure. A henchman with the craziest ponytail sets chase and hits a springboard that catapults him on the ground and then he puts a life preserver over his arms and then rolls him into the water. That's right. pretty great. There's a tense scene as payment is made and Leo breaks it all down. 
he confronts Liz and Liz, uh, well, she shoots him dead. So Brian Dennehy is dead now. Uh, suddenly explosions everywhere and a henchman runs through the door, burning to death and collapses on the ground. Neely grabs a gun and tries to shoot Silac, but it's a gun full of blanks and Silac kills Keely. The burn man on the ground, it's Rolly. So we get a nice makeup effect here. Pretty good burn. Do you do any burn stuff? Have you ever had to set people on fire? Or that fire is completely different, right? That's a different department. That falls on the stunt department. And uh, yeah, they'll handle that stuff. I've been on set. I, I mean, I've definitely set things on fire, but not uh, yeah, yeah. Not, not people. <laughs> but you would be the person who would do the person, how the, how the actor would look after the fire. Yes. Yeah. The makeup effect. Yeah. In my early career, like in film school, I did blow a few things up and do some pyro bullet hits on people but but out here in the in the hollywood world those are strictly divided into different departments okay we get the boat chasing the chopper silax on the chopper but who's driving it's the robot clown guided by raleigh uh bluey grabs the bag and leaps out with the coins raleigh switched them so they have the real ones and the money and next we see them add the gold coins to the offering and the church offering and we get classic FX tunes as the credits roll. There's also a great post-credit sequence where we just see Silax still in the helicopter, just flying really terribly over the water because he doesn't know how to land it. Yeah, they chose not to kill him. Yeah, he just, he doesn't crash. He's just still doing that. They were going for that, that laugh, which I appreciate. Final thoughts for FX2 before we move into final questions. I love the whole Bluey the Clown thing, you know, because I have worked with some excellent effects mechanics who could build incredible controlled robotic things that could do all kinds of stuff but the idea that you could fight a person with one or fly a helicopter is still pretty comical <laughs> but i just love that they chose to do that i think that's hilarious well and i love that they added goggles because when he first does it it's just a suit bluey can't, oh. can't see anything but then when he's on the boat and bluey is in the helicopter he's wearing what we would eventually know is like vr eyes because at first you'd be like well how does he see but then they were just like well obviously someone on set probably working in special effects was like well he's got to have like cameras in his eyes there's got to be something yeah so they they expanded at the end i like that i guess you could make a, you know like a boston dynamics robot that could beat somebody up <laughs> yes an effects guy wouldn't you know now as digital as cg has come in it's like you would never really need to, to have something that crazy that's true so you said you've been doing effects 28 years just 20. 20. 20 years. Uh, so what is a good day like for a special effects artist? Oh, man. <laughs> I guess recently some of the most fun things have just been seeing actors performing with something that you labored over and seeing them bring it to life in a way that you didn't imagine. Like this film that I just got back from, I spent a lot of time and blood, sweat, and tears building these things. And I remember just watching the monitor, just kind of like, wow, I never pictured it quite like this. So yeah, there's that, just that moment when the camera's rolling and something's really working and, you know, and it kind of brings back the fun because we do work insane hours and that can be very, very challenging. Insane hours, insane schedules, and just trying to pull something off that may or may not work, it seems like. And then, yeah, just, just that moment when the camera's rolling and something looks good and it's real and people are emotionally involved in it and the actors bring something to it. That's why we do it. It's just making art with other people. Yeah. Collaborating. I love that. It's got to be exciting for something like we said, Beyond Skyline, these suits, because they're bigger than humans. So you have to figure out how the person's going to fit into this thing, like where yeah. to bend and 
They were on stilts. They were over seven feet tall. There's a photo, I think it might be on my website, but Eco, the Kung Fu star, mm-hmm. there's a scene where one of those creatures busts through the wall. And in the same shot, you see Eco on one side, who's probably five, six, and this seven foot alien on the other. And just seeing them side by side, the cinematographer looking through the lens, he goes, holy fuck, how's he, how's he going <laughs> And then we have this awesome stunt guy. The guy that played that particular alien had also played Rinsler and Tron. And while wearing stilts and almost blind in this suit, he was throwing spinning back kicks and all this stuff. And it was crazy to watch that. Yeah, those are the moments for sure. Yeah, because it's one thing for something to look cool, but you also know it has to function. So if someone's fighting in the suit you design, that's pretty awesome. You know, to be honest... Like these films, the, the uh, film shoots can be so hard as far as working 80 hours in a week. This shoot we were just on, we were in 100 degree temperature at 7,000 foot elevation out in the desert and working long days, running around. And so it's really physically hard. And so I have to say, since you asked, the other great day for a special effects guy is when it's all done and you're at the wrap party drinking <laughs> the champagne with the, the people that you just suffered with. Because we... You really do bond with people, blood, sweat, and tears. And it's like, you know, it's that, that moment at the end when it's all done and it all worked out and, you know, we're all looking forward to the next one, but ready to take a week off. That's kind of a magic moment as well, for sure. And I hate to ask it, but I got to. Okay. What's a bad day like? A bad day is when, oh God, where do I start? <laughs> what is a bad day? A bad day is when something doesn't work or you're in a situation where the expectation and the reality are two totally different things. I'll give you one example if you want. Yeah, please. There was a day, I guess I probably shouldn't say what movie was, but there was a project that I was on where we had an actor in a creature suit. This was years ago. This is at least 15 years ago. But the guy had gained 30 pounds after we did his body cast. Oh, wow. So the suit did not fit him. And we were shooting in a location in the boiler room of a downtown hotel where it was costing them apparently like, I don't know, five or 10 grand an hour for us to be there. And this guy was doing a fight scene in a room where it was 130 degrees. And I was there by myself. I had so much set time that I was trusted at this company to just go handle whatever. So I was on set by myself with this character and the suit would break open in the back because they were doing a very intense fight scene Mm. and it kept breaking open. And so the first off, the medic got mad at me because she was like, you're killing this guy. It's way too hot to be in a suit and we have to keep doing these takes because this thing doesn't work. And she's giving him electrolytes and vitamin B12 and all this stuff because he's dying. Yeah. It keeps breaking. And then this is one of the only times I ever got like screamed at on set. The producer of the whole thing dragged me outside and, and yelled at me every word under the sun about how our company was costing them thousands of dollars an hour to be there and the actor was going to die because the suit wouldn't hold together. So I had to come up with a solution, which is the physical effects truck. They basically had a, like a machine shop in the back of the truck. So I went into their truck and I took some needle nose pliers and ground them to a sharp point so that I could stab uh, zip ties through the rubber suit, like stitches. And I put like 85 zip ties down his spine and stitched the whole thing together so that it could not physically break no matter what. And then we went back and finished it in one take and it was fine. And so, yes, I mean, at the end of that day, 
there were a few people patting me on the back for surviving and figuring it out. But it was also like, it's one of those moments where like, you really don't know what you're going to do. And the stakes are very high. Yeah. And so that, you know, I hate to say it, but I actually got kind of comfortable in that space to be comfortable in a sort of state of panic where the stakes are high and there's no way to solve it and you got to figure it out. But, you know, that's still not pleasant. Yeah. It's like whether, however I might react to it or not, you're also dragging other people along with you and they're stressed and trying to figure out what, you know, that was a bad day. But I guess, uh, you know, the worst is if somebody gets hurt. I've been on set nearby where I've seen people get carried off to the hospital. Yeah. That's not fun. The crazy thing about that, that usually happens on the last day of a film because everybody's so tired. Your brain kind of, you're like, oh, it's over, but it's not over. Right. Not over. You got to really watch out that last two days there. Yeah, those are bad days, but you know, tomorrow's another day. So you always find a way. And any advice for someone interested working in your field? Oh God. Tons. Gosh, where do I start? I'll start with this. If you want to do it, you can. You just have to want it bad enough. And there are steps you can take. There are things you can do to make your life easier. I think now, if you're a teenager and you're young, learn the digital tools and get good at drawing and designing. Because drawing and designing are foundational things that will open all kinds of doors. And those skills can translate to other forms. Like if you can draw really well, you will easily later learn digital painting, drawing, digital sculpting, that kind of stuff. And if you don't have those skills, you're gonna end up doing more of the grunt work. But I would say just work on as many things as you can wherever you are, whether it's local stuff, even theater stuff. But I think this is kind of a controversial thing to say, but I think if you're gonna work in special effects, if you're in the United States, you gotta do some time in Los Angeles because there are fantastically talented people in a few other places. like. There are people on the East Coast now that are outstanding. There are people up in Canada and a few cities that are outstanding. But you got to be in a place where you can just go from one job to the next, to the next, to the next, rather than once a year or something like that. I think you just got to get somewhere where you can just do a lot of work because, you know, and the other great thing about Los Angeles is that in the city here, because there are so many companies doing it, the evolution of technique happens so fast here that because everybody works at multiple companies. And so we create a new thing, a new system, a new way of doing things. And soon everybody's doing it. And that happens every year here, all the time. And when you go somewhere else, there are fantastically talented people in many cities there. I mean, there's amazing people in obviously New Zealand. There's amazing people in Australia, obviously London, other places in the UK and Europe and stuff like that. But when you go from LA to any of those places, their techniques look like they're 10 years old because LA, everything's just moving so fast here. If you're in North America, I would do a couple of years in Los Angeles and then go back to that other place. There's a lot of different pathways to take, but you know, the main thing is just never stop moving. Just keep working, learning new things all the time, learn new technology. It all integrates 3D modeling. We still do traditional sculpting, but it can be such an incredibly fun exciting job that if you want to do it you absolutely can you just go for it just do it awesome i love that and that brings us to the final question which is my favorite question alan what are your dreams like my dreams are i think if i talked about them it would sound like cause for concern (laughs) because they are long they have complicated plots 
they're vivid, they're lucid, they're photographic images that look so real to me that I wake up and I check the news to see if I psychically predicted something, which I never did, but they're insane. They'll go off and on, like sometimes I won't really have those for a few months, and then other times it'll be like I'm never asleep because my dreams are so insane. I don't know what else to say. They're insane. <laughs> well, Alan Holt, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for watching or revisiting FX2. MovieMonstersInc.com is the website. I can't wait to see this mystery film that you just got off of. What do you think? It's like nine months out? I'm not sure. I think they have to finish by Thanksgiving, but there's some visual effects, not a ton of visual effects, but there's a little bit and a lot of editing, sound design, but I will mention it on social media as soon as I can. Awesome. And we'll post about it then too. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. As always, I'm Dirk Marshall, and this has been VHS. <laughs>